Welcome to Masters of Data, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives. And we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. The DevOps movement is one of the most consequential cultural and technological ideas to hit information technology and software engineering teams in the last couple of decades. At its core, DevOps is a grassroots movement to reduce the friction between the people building applications, developers, and the people keeping those applications humming, operations, in order to decrease the time to market for innovative products, all while maintaining quality. DevOps borrows some of the best elements from other movements before it, like lean manufacturing and agile software development. This episode, we talk with two of the co-founders of the DevOps Research and Assessment, LLC, DORA, Nicole Forsgren, CEO and Chief Scientist, and Jez Humble, CTO. Nicole and Jez are two of the key thought leaders in the DevOps movement and have done more than most to evangelize and legitimize DevOps best practices. Through their extensive research, surveys, and in-depth analysis at Dora, they, along with their co-founder Gene Kim, have built a strong, data-backed foundation for DevOps. We will discuss their brand new book, Accelerate, where they brought this research together and present some fascinating conclusions about DevOps and the impacts it can have on organizations when implemented well. So without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to Masters of Data, and I'm super excited about our guests today. They're co-founders of the DevOps Research and Assessment, LLC. So we have uh, Nicole Forsgren, who's the CEO and Chief Scientist over there, and we also have Jez Humble, who is the CTO over there. And they're also co-author of a book that we're actually going to talk about today called Accelerate. They did that with uh, Gene Kim, who's also over at DevOps Research and Assessment. I'm really excited to have you guys on today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. Sure, thanks for having us. I know there's not everybody that's going to be listening to this is actually going to know what you guys have been doing with the DevOps Research and Assessment, DORA, and what you guys have been doing with the, with the company there. So can you, maybe Nicole, can you just maybe start off and kind of explain what you guys, what's the mission, what do you guys try to do, and what's the, tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. We've been working together. So we, myself, Jez, and Jean, we've been working together as a group for the last four years on the state of DevOps reports. So if anyone here isn't familiar with that, the last four years, we collaborated with the group at Puppet to do this giant research project, right? So when I first got started, I was actually a professor and we were digging in to find academically rigorous ways to understand how to drive effectiveness and efficiency and really excellence and high performance in software delivery and then organizational performance, right? Like, does technology actually make organizations better? And how do we make it better? And so we've been doing that the last four years. And then a couple of years ago, we started DORA. So I just kind of shortened it to DORA to really help continue that work and then help organizations understand how to measure what they're doing, how to benchmark against the rest of the industry, and I think more importantly, how to understand what pieces they should focus on to really help drive strategy and then accelerate their transformation. That's awesome, Nicole. I mean, I haven't been in this space for a while myself. It's really nice to see what you guys have done to bring some you know, rigor to space and data to space, which of course fits perfectly with uh, this podcast. So I'm, I'm excited we're going to be talking about that today. And even before we get into a little bit more about what you guys have been doing recently and with the book Accelerate, I really love to hear, I mean, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is, is also, it's not just about the data, it's about the people and it's about the people who create the data and work with the data. So, and I'd love to hear how you guys kind of came to this. You've both been involved in this space for a long time. Jez, you've written in a, a couple of books about this space. You both have been uh, thought leaders for a while. I love to hear how you guys came into 
really how you you got involved with DevOps and since you especially since you were there at the beginning. Go ahead, uh, Jez, you want to start? Sure. So I kind of got involved in DevOps by doing it before it was a thing, really. When I graduated from college in 99, I got a job at a startup in London. There was only two of us doing technical stuff, and so we had to do everything, whether it was racking servers in Kodo facilities to doing systems configuration, network configuration, to building the software and operating it. We used to deploy from our machines into production by just FTPing the files. We didn't have version control. But, I mean, it was very scrappy. And then I joined ThoughtWorks in 2004, which is a now pretty big IT consultancy firm. Got put on a really big project where there was many developers building stuff on Windows laptops. And the first time we tried to deploy to a production-like environment, the whole thing just went horribly wrong took us two weeks to get it deployed, the software didn't work properly, and, and we had all these problems trying to even get the thing working in a production-like environment, let alone actually getting it deployed to production. So a lot of the problems that we had and ways that we found to fix those problems went into the continuous delivery book, which me and Dave Farley, based on our experiences and those of our colleagues, started in 2006, but only came out in 2010. And when it came out in 2010, it was the same year that the very first DevOps Days conference happened. And the DevOps movement just happened to come along at exactly the same time we were there because this is what we've been doing for the last several years. So the reason that the DevOps movement became popular is just there was a confluence of a, a bunch of different parallel threads going on in the IT industry, in startups in Silicon Valley, in larger companies that were trying to solve this problem that DevOps really, the DevOps movement is about, which is how do we build and evolve and operate rapidly changing, secure, reliable, distributed systems at enormous scale, which is a, a question that we're still answering as a movement. But it turns out that a lot of people have that problem, which is why the DevOps movement has become so popular. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, I always think about when I hear how you and, and other people started moving. I, I remember back in early 2000s, I was, I was doing some of the same things. And I remember they, uh, I was working with a development group to try to get their code to production more quickly. And, and they actually, long story short, they actually caused 30 days of downtime for an application. And ever since then, I, I was so excited wow. to see this. What you guys really brought into you know, fruition in the, you know, that whole process of really thinking thoroughly about this, because it was it was amazing. So I was, I, I'm kind of like you. I was, I was doing DevOps before. It was cool. And it was, it was hard. It's amazing to see how far we've come. And Nicole, I, I know um, you came at it from a completely different direction, right? So how, how did you get involved in this? I really did, right? So although I, I had a similar-ish start, right? So I, I got into tech in late, late 90s as well. And then early 2000s, I was in kind of a similar environment to what Jez just described, right? So like I was racking servers, I was laying cable, I was configuring all my systems. I actually, my very first job was in mainframes. So like we definitely didn't have version control. Like that was crazy. And then I went on to be a software engineer at IBM. And then I went on to do some consulting work where we were building out like workflow management systems, of course, like ad hoc and poorly defined, like it was fine. And then I went on to get a PhD because I wanted to like help companies and teams and organizations understand how to do this in kind of repeatable, generalizable ways. Because every time as a consultant, you go in and you tell a team the answer, right? Well, I've seen this work here and I've seen this work here. Occasionally you would have someone say, oh, well, that won't work for my team. So I wanted to find answers from a research standpoint. And I ended up I thought for sure I was going to be doing database research because I loved databases and ways to kind of organize things. 
But I ended up stumbling into, I was still like maintaining really large scale systems. I was full-time at IBM at the time. And I stumbled into a usability study for sysadmins and walked away from that saying like, even IBM is working with people who are maintaining and managing these really large complex systems. They don't realize that that these people need like slightly different ways of interacting with and using systems. And so I completely pivoted, changed my dissertation research to try to understand how do we make and design systems and how do we study the work of sysadmins, you know, the, the back half of, of kind of DevOps to help make their work more effective, more efficient to deliver value in the best way we possibly can. And then I, my postdoc expanded that to go farther up into the development side so that we could look at development and then the handoff into operations. So if we think about it, that was sort of DevOps, right? So how do we design all these systems to optimize effectiveness and efficiency and delivering value to organizations and customers? And that was 07, 08-ish. It's really interesting because the timing was right on. It was right about the same time the DevOps movement was coming up in industry. And so then when I hit academia, I was a professor for a few years kind of pushing this research and going to industry conferences to try to make sure I understood what was happening. And then when we joined forces with Jane and Jez and the team of Puppet in the end of 2013, really it was kind of this big movement of, I was kind of one of very, very few people who'd been studying this already for several years. And then they were the ones that were kind of in the heart of it, had been in the heart of it for several years. And it was like this perfect storm, which was super like nerd fun for me. (laughs) It was great. It's like trying to get into the data and understand the people. How dare you? Who would think of that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and I mean, at the same time, I had also still been building systems and digging through log files and trying to make sense of like all of this craziness, right? So yeah, it was fun. I think that's one of the things I've always loved about the DevOps movement in general is just how grassroots it was and people just trying to understand what was going on right in front of them and how to do things better. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so effective. It seems like we all kind of, you know, developed our skills at the same time because I, I, I remember actually putting in uh, expense reports on mainframe. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get one of my own clients call me up and they're like, can you help with this thing? And I'm like, no, I should not. And they're like, you still have access. And I'm like, you revoke all of that access. It's like, Never, ever again. <laughs> Take it all away. <laughs> Well, that's great. I mean, I love hearing the you know the stories about how people, it definitely seems that you guys came at a burgeoning moment where everything was kind of coming together with the architectures, with cloud, with new technologies, with this kind of drive to build applications differently, the competitive pressures. We brought up the book Accelerate a little before. I know I've been a big fan of Gene Kim's as well for a while, like with the Phoenix Project really actually helped me think through, you know, how to think through DevOps. And now having, you know, read this book, I mean, it's great, by the way, I think you guys did an awesome job. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys got to writing this book. I mean, why did you write it? What was kind of driving that that process? Driving the process? <laughs> I think there's a few things there. I don't know. Do you want me to take this one, Jez? Sure. I think there are a few things there. So for me, it was sort of a perfect storm of we had four years of research under our belt. So I think we had a significant enough body of data and results to tell a good story. We had... A lot of people coming up to us at conferences or events or even emailing us with questions saying, 
what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? And then me saying, that's in 2013, or that's in 2014, or that's in 2016. And I was like, oh, you know, like I have it in my head. I wish there was a way I could politely or, you know, more politely say, download the last four reports, read it all, stitch it together, you know, or someone would say, I wish there was a way you could do this. Or they would come hit me with so many science methodology questions, right? And just realizing it would be really great if I had a medium, right? A platform where we could really get into much more detail. And then I think the thing that really at least like finally spurred me into action is I was going to the Agile Singapore conference and DevOps Days Singapore. And I I finally met Martin Fowler in person, right? So I we chatted before, uh, we'd had a phone call. And he said, you know, like you really need to write this thing up. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. Because he said, so when the first report came out that I was on, he asked Jez some questions about, you know, you make all these assertions and I, you know, I don't believe it. I'm pretty skeptical. You know, you can't just come up with these numbers. And Jez said, oh, but wait, Nicole is on this project. And so we had this long, lovely phone call where I outlined all of the really, really rigorous statistical methods we used. And so Martin said, I took really careful notes during that phone call. And anytime someone comes to me, I pull out these notes from these questions, or sometimes I refer to them in a talk. And you really should put those together in a book. And if you don't, this was the kicker. If you don't, I will. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Way to force your hand. I know. I'm like, that's it. No one's writing my book. (laughs) So I came back from that trip and I was like, hey, y'all, we're writing a book. Let's go. So we kind of sketched it out and we got going. Is that a fair recollection, Jez? Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I think that's about right. Except that I think that was probably an empty threat on Martin Fowler's part, but a very effective one. I was giving Martin a hard time and he goes, no, I don't think I was going to write it. I think I was just going to like nudge you or do a blog post. I wouldn't have written the book. So I could be misremembering it, but my recollection is that I got off my keister. I tell you what. It makes for a good story, Nicole. Remember that. I started writing. And you're writing the history, so that's always going to stand. You're taking notes now. That's all people can remember. That's 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 all that matters. Now, how long has the book been out? Now it's been a few months now, right? Two months, just under two months. Okay, what's the reception been? I mean, has this actually helped you? Because I mean, it seems like part of what you guys are doing over at Doors, you 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 have a mission around, you know, improving the way or people are implementing DevOps. You, did you find that like having this in a book form and people can consume it that way has that helped you get your message across? Yeah, I mean, the reception has been great. We're on, I think. The fourth printing now. Fifth? Fifth printing. So they just did a printing of 15,000, which is, you know, for a book into the second month is pretty extraordinary. So it's been received very well. It's definitely a success from the perspective of IT books. Any IT book that publishes more than 10,000 copies is considered a success. We've exceeded that in our first two months. So we're obviously delighted about that and very grateful to everyone who's bought it and spread the word. But yeah, there's obviously a big market for this, you know, and I think it's because people want to know that what we're doing and the things that we talk about actually really work and they want data and evidence. And that's really been lacking in our industry. You know, for a long time, we talked about how agile is an empirically driven movement, but it's very hard to gather data. You can't do randomized control trials 
in the context of software development. Firstly, because there's so many variables and they're incredibly difficult to control in the context of teams building software. A lot of the studies that have been done have been done using small teams of students where you, you, know, you can't really generalize the results. There have been some studies done using open source projects, but again, very hard to control those variables. And then you know, if you did want to do a randomized control trial in a commercial context, you can't really do that because you can't say it's very hard to induce companies to create two teams and try and control the variables in the knowledge that one of them might fail and cost a bunch of money. So we have a fundamentally different approach to studying these systems. And it was a chance. I remember Nicole telling me that you know she found it very hard to actually find someone to supervise her thesis because it was so innovative what, what she was doing. But I think the results that we've been able to produce really speak for themselves. And I think that they've been very widely and happily received because we were able to actually provide real data and, and research on these things that we've been talking about for many years now. That makes a lot of sense. And I can, I can definitely sense it myself. A lot of people that I've had those conversations about DevOps, a lot of it is about you basically giving them a platform of results and data that they can use to drive that adoption in their own teams. I mean, that's great. Cause I mean, otherwise it's, you know, it's a lot of people talking about opinions and that only works in Silicon Valley. That won't work where we are at. And you guys have shown that that's not the case. And that's great. You know, or they'll say something like, well, that only works in startups. That doesn't work in highly regulated fields, which we've also shown isn't true. Well, you know, and that, that was actually one thing that as I was reading through the book that I, I just found really interesting as well, because you you guys have basically shown, right, it's not only not only startups, but not only like one type of architecture either. Like, you know, microservices, this, or, you know, they have to be cloud. You, you've actually seen high performing groups kind of across the board, right? Yeah, you can do this stuff in mainframes and be successful. So, yeah, absolutely. People tend to look at the wrong things in terms of the elements for success. Which is natural, but you know, architecture is really interesting because you know, people think, well, we have to re-architect, and then they buy all the latest technology, and or they, you know, re-platform to Docker and Kubernetes and whatever. And not to bash those technologies, I think those technologies are really, really amazing. But it's the outcomes that those technologies enable that's critical, which is you know, teams being able to perform self-service deployments on demand, not having to go through these very complex orchestrated deployments teams being able to run tests locally and, and get uh, comprehensive test results without having to wait for a complex integrated environment that takes days or weeks to provision. Those outcomes are what's important. And you can achieve those outcomes with mainframes. And you can do all the latest stuff with Docker and Kubernetes and, and not achieve those outcomes. So that's something we've been able to show very clearly. Right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and, and one, one thing that I, I found you know, really interesting about this because having, you know, kind of watched from the, the sidelines as this was developing, it seemed a lot of times the people that I would interact with, the, the tendency of us, you know, technologists is to go towards the technology, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it was easy to describe early on in DevOps as like, oh, puppet versus chef, are you going to, you know, how are you automating? And, and all that was really important. But, you know, at least from my perspective, a lot of it came down to the culture. What kind of culture did you have in place? And you guys spent a lot of time on that in the, um, in the book, and I and I think if I remember right, there was one place where you said that culture could be measured, which I just I just found fascinating because that that's one of the things I would have thought would have been a struggle for you guys in this process is like how do you how do you measure the impact of culture? So maybe you guys can talk a little bit about that. How did that? Um, I mean, you had a whole section in the the book that was kind of about culture and about leadership. Maybe talk a little bit more about how how you guys approached that and and what you saw the impact of culture was. So I think one thing that's important to start with is anytime you want to measure something, you first have to start by defining it, right? So we need to understand what it is we're talking about when we say culture, 
right? Because so often people say, you know, I'm with you, right? Culture is important. We need to make sure we have a good culture when we talk about DevOps. Well, so often people are talking about very different things, right? Are you talking about national identity and culture? Because that is a thing, right? That has actually been shown to have uh, big impacts in certain types of literature, right? Like in financial research. Well, that's not normally what we're talking about when we talk about DevOps transformations, right? When we talk about that kind of a culture, we're usually talking about things like we hear phrases like breaking down silos and fast feedback and accepting failure and doing postmortems, right? And so what we did is we tried to keep that in mind as we thought about the type of culture that we were going to be researching. And what we did is we came across a definition of a culture that was defined by a sociologist named Dr. Ron Westrom. So he had been researching human factors and system safety, particularly in high-risk, complex environments like healthcare and aviation. And this particular definition and kind of typology was found to be predictive of performance outcomes in these environments. We were like, well, this is great, right? This is like a really fantastic place to start. And this definition of culture from him included things like level of cooperation among three different kind of groupings, like low, medium, or well, I guess you could say it's low, medium, and high, but he calls them pathological or power-oriented bureaucratic and rule-oriented or generative, performance-oriented, or maybe even mission-oriented, right? He talks about if the messenger is shot, right, you blame the person who brings you bad news, the messenger is neglected, or the messenger is trained, right? To bring, You want that person to bring you bad news so you can uncover bad things that are happening. Responsibilities are shirked, you have narrowly defined responsibilities, or risks are shared. You talk about bridging is discouraged, bridging is tolerated, or bridging is encouraged. That sounds a lot like breaking down silos, right? Failure leads to scapegoating, failure leads to justice, or failure leads to inquiry. That sounds a lot like implementing postmortems. Novelty is crushed, novelty leads to problems, or novelty is implemented. It sounds a lot like encouraging experimentation, right? So this was resonating a lot with the types of things when we were hearing people say culture was really important. And so what we did was we used psychometric methods and we turned this into Likert-type questions, right? So we kind of anchored on the high end. We turned it into questions like, information is actively sought, right? And so you can say on my team, okay, is information sought? I can strongly disagree with that. I can kind of neither agree nor disagree, or I can strongly agree, right? We can say responsibilities are shared. We can say cross-functional collaborations encouraged and rewarded. Failure causes inquiry, right? Then we collected a bunch of data, and I went through several different types of statistical tests to see if all of these questions together actually measure one core idea of culture, if they don't measure anything else, and if everyone is reading them in relatively the same way. And what we found is that it does indeed capture a really good, we call it a latent construct, a similar underlying idea of a thing, because it's all the same thing, I'm going to call it culture. Now there are several teams around the industry that are doing this like six, seven item measure kind of on a quarterly cadence so they can see how well their, what kind of their team culture measure is. No, I, I found that absolutely that'd be fascinating because it was like, it's like reading through this pathological, bureaucratic and generative 
system was like, oh yeah, I remember that from one place I worked. It was exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we find that it really resonates. Yeah. Well, and the thing that I think I like the most about it is Dr. Westrom's research gave us a really nice definition of culture that we found was applicable to technology. Another thing our research did was it gave us a nice way to measure that. We kind of extended Dr. Westrom's research that way. Another thing that our research did was it really gave us a nice way to see how culture impacts software delivery performance and organizational performance. And it showed us how we can impact and change and alter culture. And Jez, I know this is one of your favorite things to talk about. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll let you talk about this, how we can act our way to a better culture. Right. So I've been interested in the lean movement for a long time. Uh, obviously, the lean software development movement was really pioneered by uh, Mary and Tom Poppendick in a series of books on lean software development, which you know I read when they came out in the early thousands when I was working at ThoughtWorks. So this is something I've been interested in for a while. And then as a result of that, I got interested in the history of, of lean manufacturing, which actually happened very near where I currently live in, in California. So the NUMI factory was a joint venture between General Motors and Toyota. That was a, a factory that's about 30 minutes away from my house, which is now the Tesla factory. So the NIMI story is really interesting. I'm not, I'm not going to cover it now, but if you're interested, and I really recommend listening to a podcast on This American Life, there's a transcript available as well, which talks about the story of NIMI and how the people who built that joint partnership took a workforce which was producing really bad cars for GM, worker management relationships had broken down, and they took that workforce and basically completely turned it around to the extent that they were producing the best cars in GM North America's whole manufacturing capability and as good as the cars being produced in Japan. And the guy who designed the training program for that team was a guy called John Shook, who was the very first employee of Toyota Japan, American employee, sorry, of Toyota Japan. And he's hugely important in the history of the lean movement, which came from that joint partnership. That's where the word lean manufacturing or the term lean manufacturing comes from, was the people who worked in that NUMI factory who then went on to write about their experiences there. And one of the things he says is, the way to change culture is to change behavior, to change the way that people work and what they do. And so our hypothesis was, well, maybe that's true in technology as well. Maybe implementing technical practices like continuous integration, test automation, maybe implementing lean practices like working in small batches, using visual displays, the lean product management stuff that's come from lean startup, things like building MVPs, uh, working, building prototypes, maybe implementing these practices will change culture. And that's indeed what we found. We found that implementing the practices changes the culture. Changing the culture impacts not just software delivery performance, but also organizational performance, both in terms of commercial measures such as profitability, market share and productivity, also non-commercial measures such as the quality of the products produced, the ability to achieve uh, mission goals and so forth. So we know that changing the way you work changes culture, which changes performance, which is, I think, a pretty big result. No, absolutely. I mean, that was that was definitely the part of the book when I was really fascinated with you guys pull it together. And, you know, one thing it um, kind of reminds me of some stuff that I'd, I'd read of, too, is that I, I've always been interested in uh, Skunk Works and, you know, how Lockheed Martin developed these, you know, kind of amazing aircraft in the, in the 50s and the 60s. And I remember reading that and, you know, understanding like how they did it and like how they did team structure and, and how they work together and I mean, putting engineers and mechanics on the, you know, together on the floor and then reading about how, 
Elon Musk was doing it at Tesla and then, you know, reading how you guys are doing here. And it, it really is remarkable to me that it's not, there's a tendency when we're in these industries to think, oh, well, we, this is the way we do it. This is the way we think about it. We don't need to think about how people are doing it over there. But I love how you guys have pulled in these threads and strands from different parts of the industry and be like, well, we can learn something from that over there. We can learn something from that over there. And I think that's, that's a really great contribution to how we're doing technology. Cause it just seems like a lot of times in the technology industry, we tend to ignore what you know goes on other places. I'm so glad you said that because it's something that really winds me up. I'm not going to go on a big <laughs> rant now, but I absolutely could. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, hold on, hold on. Research Nicole is going to have to step in because not everything applies the same when technology is introduced. For example, we know that communication patterns can change. So early on in my academic career, I studied nonverbal communication. As an aside, this is interesting. When people lie face-to-face, their communication patterns change in certain predictable ways. But when people lie using technology, their communications patterns change in completely different ways. Can you give an example of that? Okay, I'm going to have to try to remember right now. When I lie to you... I might get this slightly wrong because I wasn't prepared for this. When I lie to you in person, I do things like hedge. And I want to try to remember if my word count goes up or my word count goes down, but it's one of them. Now, if I lie to you over chat or over email, the opposite happens. So whichever happens in person is one thing, but the opposite happens when I do it over a chat, like a text-based, either asynchronous or synchronous text-based communication. So there is a very, very real thing that happens where once you introduce a technology, we really do have to test that hypothesis, right? Even if you think and we assume there's a presupposition that the technology context looks similar, we really do have to test it out because sometimes technology throws a wrench in the game. It really does change the way people act and behave and interact with things. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it looks the same. So here's another thing, right? And Jez is going to know this. Jez is going to like be smiling and nodding his head. Manufacturing is a case where like we know what happens, like queue times and whip limits and all this thing, right? So, and I was an accounting professor for years, so I can talk about the way people behave in the case of manufacturing. However, when we're talking about technology, we're dealing with inventory that is completely invisible. So like in some ways, there's the case for saying, well, of course, right? Like this is just inventory. The same principles should apply. However, people may act and behave completely differently because there is no way to see inventory. There is no way to see the assembly line behave in the same way. So we actually really needed to test a lot of these things out. And one example is whip limits, right? So we looked at lean principles, right? And we drew from whip limits. And whip limits do help predict and support software delivery performance, but they don't have the strong effect that we would normally assume until we pair and combine it with other lean accounting or lean principles such as visual display boards and a combination of monitoring to drive business decisions. And then we see the amplified effect in technology. This is a theme of our work in general, is that you can't ignore things in other industries. There's a thing in tech that I really don't like, which is like, we are evolving a completely new way of doing things and nothing else applies from other industries, which I find you know, insufferably arrogant because what we're doing in technology is in many ways repeating the mistakes of generations that came before. My favorite example of this, I've got a book on my bookshelf called uh, The Human Side of Enterprise 
by a guy called McGregor, which came out in the 60s, which talks about styles of management. He talks about theory X management, where you, and again, I, I'm going to have this problem where I can't remember which is which, but there's theory X and theory Y, which are terrible names because obviously I can't remember which is which. But one of them is, you know, carrot and stick ways of managing people. The other one is you assume that people want to do good work and help encourage them to do that work. And, and the thing about it is you get what you expect. If you treat people as fungible resources who are interchangeable and who respond to carrot and stick incentives, they will behave that way. And theory why, if you treat people as real human beings, that they will respond that way. So however you behave, your predispositions will be confirmed. So you know this is written about in the 60s, and we're still learning that in management more than 50 years later. So I find that really annoying, but absolutely want to affirm what Nicole said. You can't just take these things that have been shown in other industries and then just apply them willy-nilly. You've got to retest it and revalidate it because they're complex social systems and technology has an impact on complex social systems. And you know, I think what the Poppendicks did with the, the lean software development was amazing. I mean, they took something from a completely different paradigm and said, what happens when we apply this to the context of software development? And it, it was hugely influential. But I think for us to be able to come along and actually take a scientific approach to studying what really works and what doesn't, I think you know, that, that's been hugely, just going through this project has taught me an, an enormous amount. And hopefully that will be true of people reading the research as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do, again, love the way that you guys kind of pulled that in. Because I, I think it, there is a, I couldn't agree with you more, Jez, on the, the fact that we tend to ignore what's what's come before us. And, you know, and there's also a tendency of, you know, those who came before us like, well, we, nobody can do any better. It's always that kind of balance, right? And, and it does seem to come down to a, a lot of this is that there's some core cultural changes that need to be accepted about, you know, grassroots, small teams that have devolved decision-making that is opposed to this kind of command and control structure like you might have had, you know, earlier in the 19th, you know, 20th century. So it, it's endlessly fascinating. Nicole, I do have to ask you one thing. So is this, is research, Nicole, like an alternate personality that like comes out every once in a while? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a joke that when Nicole says, research says, like, it's like, take a shot. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I have to say like, you know, that the, all those things about the application of you know, new research methods to old ideas. Nicole has been hugely influential in understanding how that works for me. You know, that thing that she talked about, about how you have to test those hypotheses. That's not in my nature. I'm just like, well, this obviously works, so let's run with it. And the fact that she takes this very rigorous analytical method to testing those hypotheses and looking at these nuances, which have huge impacts on actually what happens on the ground, that's completely changed my way of thinking about how to apply these theories to what's going on in the real world and, and practice. So I just wanted to give her a shout out for that. Thank you. And it's been like lovely working with the team, right? I, Jez was much more familiar with the lean movement than I was, even with my accounting background and definitely some of your tech background. It's been a fantastic experience working with the team. And I also have to say thanks for your patience. I'm pretty sure I'm really lucky I didn't get kicked off the project that very first year when I kept saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, that's not how this works. No, that's not actually a hypothesis. <laughs> it was great, though. It was enormously frustrating. But if you hadn't done that, we wouldn't have proper science. So this is hilarious because I'm doing, you know, I'm doing science projects with my kids right now who are six and eight. And, you know, I'm saying, okay, before you design the hypothesis, you have to create a theory. Let's, and my kids are rolling their eyes and my wife's rolling her eyes. And I'm like, <laughs> listen, I'm just channeling Nicole here. So we've got to do it right. 
So yeah. Sorry, y'all. I'm passing it forward. What can I say? Love it. I like that. I'm going to, I'm never going to, I have a, I have a seven-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. So I, I, we actually went to the Maker's Fair yesterday and just seeing them discover these things. And I think it's amazing to see how their minds just kind of naturally understand this whole experimental thing and the kind of scientific approach if you just find a way to explain it to them. So that's, that's pretty cool. Now, one thing is we're kind of, so this has been great talking about what kind of the wrap up, maybe the culture discussion about this. Another thing that I found really interesting, having been in work for enterprise companies for a long time, I don't know how many leadership classes I've either willingly or unwillingly been forced to go through. I was really interested to get to the point in the book where you guys talked about, you used the term transformational leadership. I was not actually really expecting that. I was expecting more of the, to talk about culture like we just went through. And I found that really interesting. So I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about how you guys, how you kind of came to that idea and like where, how you've seen that come out in the research. I found that personally to be fascinating. I think this was sort of the culmination of a couple of years, right? So we'd been looking at the Westrom culture typology for a few years. We'd been batting around what leadership might look like. I'd been digging into the literature. Lots of people at conferences were saying like, how do we make a difference, right? Is it org design? Is it something else? Traditionally, DevOps was a grassroots movement, but now that it's getting all of this traction, organizations are trying to make a difference, right? So what does, what does leadership look like? So I started digging into the literature to see what might be a really good application and set of hypotheses to test. And some people were saying, you know, maybe it's transactional leadership, maybe it's servant leadership. When it turns out, you know, servant leadership is nice, but, it, but that doesn't tend to have predictive results. You know, it doesn't tend to have outcomes that really drive something for an organization. But transformational leadership does, particularly in contexts that look like something like what, what we would be looking for in a, I'm going to say transformational sense, right? But technology transformation, right? You're trying to move from one state to another. And so we kind of pulled up, or I pulled up, you know, a model of transformational leadership from, I want to say a paper from Rafferty and Griffin that had five different dimensions, right? And so it has these five characteristics of a transformational leader that at least looked like it was really promising. And these dimensions were vision, right? You have a clear understanding of where the organization's going and where it should be in five years. Inspirational communication. You can communicate in a way that inspires and motivates, even in an uncertain or changing environment. And I'm like, okay, well, that's tech, right? Intellectual stimulation. You can challenge followers to think about problems in new ways, which is exactly what we want our teams to do, right? We want our teams to be able to do it, not just the leaders. Supportive. You can demonstrate care and consideration of the, uh, your team's personal needs and feelings. And then personal recognition, right? You do want leaders that can praise and acknowledge the achievements, goals, and improvements in work quality and can personally compliment others when they do outstanding work. And so we tested this in the 2017 study. And I was really kind of excited about the results because what we found was that leadership does play a role, right? It does have an impact. But what it does is it has an impact in supporting all of the rest of the work that happens. It kind of has this bolstering effect or this amplification effect, right? It helps support the technical work. It helps support the process work, which then in turn has follow-on effects to everything else that happens, right? Which then in turn helps with software delivery performance and in turn helps with organizational performance. However, like leaders alone can't do it themselves. So it's definitely worth investing in, in creating and building strong leaders, right? So 
it was interesting that you said, you know, you've been to a whole bunch of leadership classes, which is great. But I've also seen companies where they're in this kind of like hyper growth stage. They have to build up their tech team so quickly that they're just promoting team leads and technical leaders as fast as they can, but they never learn how to be leaders. Or you're still in this grassroots movement stage and you're not totally sure what to do, right? Like, what does it mean to be a leader? Maybe you don't even have people reporting to you. You don't have to be a manager to be a leader. What types of things should you be focusing on? And again, this is something that I think we really see a lack of in the tech industry. Firstly, this idea that, you know, well, you don't really need management. You don't really need leadership. You just need to hire the best people. I think that's completely false. One of the things that our study on culture and on leadership and echoed by, for example, Google's Project Aristotle research, where they looked at how to build great teams at Google, is that what's important is the relationships between people on the teams, not just the individuals themselves. You know, the cult of tech, which is that you hire the A players and then it takes care of itself. That's not borne out by the evidence. And then this other thing that Nicole talks about, where we're just going to find the great technical people and promote them, you know, it just becomes the Peter principle really, really quickly. And the same things that make you a great engineer are not the same things that make you a great manager in any way at all. And I think that's borne out by what we see. So I just wanted to call that out in particular, just because it does hit two things that, you know, people in, in the tech industry believe are true that really aren't. Well, and that's such a great point, Jess, right? Now, technical skills are important, but they are skills. And so are leadership skills, right? Like this is something that you should absolutely try to learn and grow and is something that can be taught. So this is really an investment that organizations should be making in their people and in their leaders if they really want to be excelling and growing and amplifying the rest of the efforts throughout their organization. And by the same measure, technical skills are things that you can learn. The idea that, you know, you're just going to hire these people who were born to be brilliant, it's completely false. Technical skills can be learned just as well as any other skills. And I think you know, the, the third problem we see in our industry in this area is companies you know, wanting to hire people with the right skills rather than investing in helping people develop the necessary skills, which is tremendously short-sighted in an industry where the technologies and the skills change on such a frequent basis. Well, it's short-sighted and it's expensive and it's crazy, right? I mean, we quote Adrian Cockcroft in our book when he was at Netflix still, right? Everyone would look at him and they would say, where do you hire these amazing engineers? And he would look back at them and he would say, well, I hired them from you. So, I mean, sure, you can spend a ton of money and you can go out and you can poach incredible engineers for an ungodly amount of cash, or you can grow your own people. And then you know what? They know your company, they know your infrastructure, they know the context, and they're loyal. And as the transformational leadership research shows, you know, just hiring the best people and setting them free isn't enough. You know, that this was actually what McKinsey tried to do for a number of years in the 90s. There was a very big and very famous organization that followed McKinsey's research very rigorously and just hired the best people and, and let them get on with it. Um, that company was called Enron. <laughs> yeah, and they did. They made a ton of money. <laughs> Didn't go so well. I think that's uh, like you had your uh, hot button issue. I think that's that's definitely one of my hot button issues, guys, is the, the idea of like the management and hiring and, and promotional practices is within technology because it tends to be attached more to performance in your current job than these ideas. That there's characteristics that really can drive performance from a leadership perspective and there's characteristics that can drive you know performance from a team perspective and an individual perspective and it's it's good to see that the technology hopefully is, you know, industry is moving in the right direction to start thinking about these things because, uh, Nicole, that, that quote that you were 
you mentioned from for about Netflix that I was just listening to an interview about Netflix just a couple of days ago and it, talking about the culture that they they developed there and it's it's this is just so important because if you can't you can make all these structural changes you can make all these technology changes and and if you don't think about the culture you can end up deadening the impact of all these places you invested right mm-hmm. and one one thing you guys said too maybe they, you kind of put a coat on this is that. And it, again, it was actually something a little unexpected for me was the the idea of the correlation between this DevOps culture and job satisfaction. So I've heard that in other places, particularly, you know, having been on the you know product side about, you know, agile and job satisfaction. But I, I liked how you guys pulled that in as well. And is that you did an MPS survey as part of this, right, about how satisfied people were with their their current um, environment. Is that is that right? Yes. We included a few kind of satisfaction and happiness and identity outcome measures. And NPS was one of them. Yeah, I, I, I like because it, it seemed to be that that strong correlation in some ways, like at least in, in the ways that I've encountered, you know, the arguments for DevOps. It's, it's usually been about, well, if you implement DevOps, you'll be more effective and you'll get code out quicker. And I mean, that's great. But to then go in and say, hey, you want to retain those people that you hired and you want to have a you know a high job satisfaction and you actually want to attract those better you, you need to implement this seems like you can make an argument this this is one of the most effective ways to job satisfaction for these you know companies that are trying to go this direction is that sound right absolutely i mean and so many companies right now are trying to hire and we found that high performing teams and organizations their employees were 2.2 times more likely to recommend their organization as a great place to work which is huge if you're trying to hire and then we reference other research that found that having a high employee net promoter score, that ENPS, drove revenues, right? I think that was research by Bain and company. So it ends up having kind of this double on effect of it also driving revenues. So it's a smart investment, right? What we're finding to kind of, you know, sum this up again, investing in smart technology transformation, whether you want to call it DevOps or tech transformation or digital transformation, which involves more than just tech, right? So it's tech and it's process and it's culture. Gives you strong ability to transform your technology so you can delight your customers, right? And drive revenue. It also makes the work better for the people, right? It decreases burnout. It decreases deployment pain. It makes your culture better. It makes your employee net promoter score better, which makes it easier to hire. It has this great turnaround effect to kind of, it's almost like creating this halo effect that makes a lot of things better. It does require some investment though, right? It is an investment in technology, but it really, at the end of the day, it's an investment in your organization. And I think what you see, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have heard this before, where you know the teams know that they need to invest in improvement work, whether that's, you know, building test automation or refactoring or improving the design of the the software or doing things which are not just, you know, delivering features. And they're told, listen, we don't have time for that. We've got to deliver the features. And I think what the research shows is that that's a really false economy, even in the short term. There's definitely an argument for getting things to market quickly in the knowledge that you're going to incur some, you know, what's called often called technical debt in the literature. And, you know, Martin Fowler has a good blog post about this. He calls it the technical debt quadrant diagram. But when that keeps happening and you never have time to do anything, A, it slows things down because it becomes harder to change the software, which is the reason why you can't get things done, by the way, which is why you're going so slowly. So saying, well, let's continue down this path of not doing improvement work, you're going to end up with your feet stuck in concrete. But also, it just it makes people miserable when, when people don't get to actually imagine you're living somewhere 
and it's covered in garbage and you're like, well, you know, maybe we should go out and clean up the garbage. And people are told, well, no, you, you can't do that. We're not going to give you the resources to do that. We're just going to pile up more garbage. It's going to make you miserable. And so investing in improvement work not only will make you go faster and improve things, it will also make people happier. And then they're more likely to enjoy their jobs. And also, it's a virtuous cycle. So it's not just the immediate benefit, there's knock-on benefits. I mean, we've never seen people... You know, I used to work on projects where I would get rolled off the project onto another project before the project actually went live. And that's fundamentally a miserable experience. When you're practicing things like continuous delivery and you're getting feedback from customers and you see your features go live and then you get the feedback and then you improve them, that's really motivating. No one who will practice continuous delivery, continuous deployment ever said, you know, let's go back to releasing every six months. That's just not something that happens. So these things are all self-reinforcing. And it's very dumb to continue down the path of like, let's just build the features and think that you're going to have anything other than the worst possible outcome. I like that. I like the way you describe it. And it's, uh, it's a great note to uh, wrap this up on. It's uh, DevOps making the world a better and happier place, one life at a time. <laughs> I think you guys have written a great book here. I, I love how you guys approach this. You know, everybody that's listening, definitely go check out their book, Accelerate, that they, uh, Nicole and Jez uh, co-authored with Gene Kim. Great read. And it was, it you know, kind of opened my eyes up to a lot of different ways to improve performance on a team. And I, I learned a lot. Statistics was not my best class in college. So I appreciate um, your guys' skill to, uh, to kind of pull all this data together. And uh, Nicole Forsgren and uh, Jez Humble, thank you again for coming on here. Really appreciated having you on the, on the show. And thank you for this great discussion. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com.